I kind of like the stairs all the way across. I can come up at the same time that they're going down. And hey, open your Bibles or keep them open to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. We'll look at the second scene uh, within this chapter. We've been looking at this, um, this narrative of Esther, thinking about a remnant of God's people that are in exile and uh, how do they exist? How do they continue? How do they persevere in times of, of exile? How, do we, how would we continue on and persevere as the people of God when things aren't really the way they're supposed to be? Well, now we come to a scene where it, it gets, if it could, I suppose, a, a, bit, a step worse, a little bit further down the road. Now there's an assassination attempt uh, upon, upon the king. Ahasuerus, which we read. Uh, assassination plots, attempts are really quite fascinating. I mean, not that we should really enjoy them or things of that nature, but they're just intriguing historically, aren't they? Think of it, though, from Mordecai's perspective. And I, I reflect on this because of the events of yesterday. It's good to have Jennifer and Tyler here this morning. Welcome. Happy congratulations to you on your wedding. Yeah, all right. Um, but, you know, as, as Steve and Jennifer are doing the father-daughter dance and we're watching, and, and um, I, at that moment, my dry eye syndrome kicked in. And, um, it, well, it did. I mean, it, it, st- it just takes, you know, it just takes one little sparkle of liquid and then they just all decide to come. There's something distinct, unique about the dad giving the bride away, and even when the guy comes to ask for her hand in marriage, and to you know, it's just profound. Now, Mordecai is Esther's adoptive father. They're actually cousins. Uh, there must be an age variation in this. Mordecai is well established, and. Um, but now, you know, there was no getting permission from the father, no seeking the father's blessing, even adoptive father's blessing for uh, the, the, to be queen's hand in marriage. He, the king just takes her, just abducts her, just says, we're doing this. And, and now there's an assassination plot being hatched upon the king by now, it seems Esther is the queen. Now, it's quite likely that Esther's life would be in danger at this juncture as well. So Mordecai's got a lot of loyalties, and two of these loyalties coming together in this assassination plot that is being hatched. We're going to move through this, this narrative um, with, with several, oh, what should we call them, bookmarks. Uh, the, the first is we're going to talk about this gathering, verse 19. It's a bit troublesome. It's troublesome emotionally, I suppose, but it's troublesome even um, exegetically. How does this all fit in time-wise? The virgins are being gathered together the second time. They're gathering together the second time, and Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The gathering. We don't exactly quite know what do you mean a second time. 
And uh, it would appear, as verse 20 goes on, Esther had not made known, and uh, Mordecai will tell Esther of the assassination plot, and Esther then will tell the king. So she at least has you know, close communication with the king at this time. She's likely been coronated. And they, of course, we're given that historical event in verses 17 18. But now there's another round of virgins. What's going on? Is this going back in time a little bit, or is this continuing on? And I, I don't exactly know, but I suspect knowing what we do know about the character of Ahasuerus, he uh, is not going to stop those evening rendezvous with all the virgins from the 120, what is it, 127, 129 regions from around the empire. Queen Esther has quote-unquote won the crown, but her life in many ways probably feels like she lost. There's not likely a lot of loyalty here, a lot of single faithfulness, monogamy here. Um, And it's a reminder to us of what we found as application last week, that men use women, and indeed women use men. We use each other in ways for selfish advantage, selfish gratification. And it ought not to be this kind of abuse. The Me Too culture is not new. It is a perennial problem since the fall. And we need to do the right things to stand up against that kind of of abuse. But it isn't only only in those areas of of intimacy. We use one another for selfish advantage. And in some ways, it's a sociological outworking of an evolutionary theory, survival of the fittest. If I'm going to survive, then it's okay for me to step on you to move forward. And we've applied this socially. Well, that's verse 19. We're really just setting the stage here at this point. Verse 20 goes on to talk about the girl. Uh, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai even as when she was brought up by him. Now, Mordecai, when Esther is in the, uh, in the harem, with those 12 months of treatments, preparation for her night with the emperor, Mordecai was faithful to go visit. It gives us a clue that that Mordecai must have some access to the inner workings of the palace or the courtyard. He he can get close enough uh, to walk by the harem entry, the gateway, and not only walk by, but even to be able to have some form of communication, likely not with Esther, but with the servants and guards and whoever would be there to get messages to her and she to get messages back to Mordecai to ensure that Esther is safe. Now, we see this, this good, noble trait of Mordecai and that he's, he is trying to 
look out for his adopted daughter, Hadassah. And, and he's doing what he can in a very limited circumstance to protect and to provide for her. Now, this, this is uh, a noble trait, and it's something that actually is a leadership quality, a leadership criteria for eldership in the church, for leadership in the church. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Mm. So you have that parental obligation to children, but you have children obligation to parents, and it was alluded to in our kids' corner, what do we do with our tongues? We are to honor our parents, we're to honor father and mother, but not only in with our tongues, with the whole of our being. Children honor their parents, children obey their parents. And again, the New Testament ethic is, is the same thing. Ephesians chapter 6, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother that you might go live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, there's a very pragmatic application in this sense. Esther has obeyed the words of Mordecai, uh, withholding information about her ethnicity, and we don't exactly know the reasons why. We get a sense that there must be some anti-Semitism, some prejudice going on within the empire at this point, but nothing overt that we would know of. But Mordecai, again, he seems to have this ability to get information, to give information. He likely knows that there's some undercurrents of prejudice going on within the leadership of the government, let alone the empire. Well, um, this is a relationship, isn't it? And we see this in their relationship, and through Esther's obedience, her life is prolonged. Her life is saved. We see a very practical outworking of these principles. Children, obey your parents, that you would live long in the land. Now, they're not in the land, and that's another dilemma and another problem. Why aren't they in the land? Because the children didn't obey God. And God said, you're not going to worship me properly? Then, I, then don't worship me at all. And he removes them from the presence of the temple that they wouldn't desecrate the temple any longer. It's about holiness and discipline of his people. Well, here's this girl. A good girl. Well, so we, we've seen the gathering, the girl. How about the gate? Verse 21. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. We've already had some hints of Mordecai's position. Here he is sitting in the king's gate. This is generally the place of counsel, even the place of meeting out justice, of judgment being uh, brought about in, in civil cases. And the wise men of the city, the leaders of the city, would be in the king's gate. And we know of Lot, who was in such a position in the book of Genesis, sat in the city gate. Um, Boaz was one who would sit in the city gates. And even Psalm 1 gives the illusion of the wise man who, who sits not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
you sit with the righteous. And there is this gate, gateway picture, and Mordecai is one there. Now, this gate, um, they've unearthed parts of this out there in the old Persepolis and out in the old Susa, sorry. And uh, let me read some of the stuff here about the gate. It was 131 feet by 92 feet. Good-sized gate. And it opened up into a courtyard with several um, accompanying buildings, a couple of side rooms, and administrative offices and supply rooms. And it would seem, according to uh, Adele Berlin, she has a great commentary in the JPS series, according to her, she says, Mordecai likely has an office there within the gate. An office. An office, yeah. Mordecai is one of the wise men bringing counsel to people, but apparently there's enough evidence to say that he was one of the Gosaka. He was like one of the secret service, one of the secret police. That term comes up in several different other documents and kind of intriguing, kind of fun to think about. Let our imaginations, our sanctified biblical imaginations run with this. This is fantastic. Mordecai is there, and, and he's a man who is wise. He's a man who brings counsel, and again, we're given this indication that he knows how to get information, how to process information, and to do it without drawing attention to himself or causing outward alarm. He's a spy. In fact, Adele in her commentary, she names this whole chapter Sex and Spies. Only a couple of people chuckled. Well, verse 21 goes on. Now we have the guards, Bigthan and Teresh. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, go back to chapter 1 and verse 10. And this is, this is the seventh day when the king is happy and he's calling for the queen to come and uh, present herself before the big gathering of party. And on the seventh day, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha. Does that sound familiar? Bigtha? It's possible that Bigtha and Bigthan are the same guy. And one of the guards, uh, perhaps responsible for guarding both the king and the queen. We don't exactly know why Bigthan and uh, Teresh are angry, but the word here is they are really angry. And it's anger that is, that is boiling over and resulting in an action, immediate action. It's the same word that's used of, of Ahasuerus in chapter 1, where when the queen refuses to come, he just erupts with anger. Same word that's used here. Big Thun and Teresh have the same kind of eruptive 
volcanic anger that's coming out. And this anger is leading them to want to kill, to murder the king himself. Now, we can only surmise why. The details are limited, and it's almost as if it is indeed a, a dossier, and we have limited access for your eyes only. We're only given the fact that there is an assassination attempt, not the whys and the wherefores. Maybe Bigthan was a, a loyalist to the queen and didn't like the way Ahasuerus treated her. And so Bigthan and Teresh are going to just get rid of him. This plot uh, is foiled, which we'll see to in, in just a moment or two. But indeed, Ahasuerus would be killed by assassination, someone uh, letting the assassin into his chamber, and he was killed, oh, what, maybe 10 years from this point? And likely the queen with him. Whether that's Esther at the same time, I don't know. Well, these guards let the anger get the better of them, and it's a good reminder for us in our New Testament ethic as well. The anger produces death. It's murderous. Even the thought process itself is murderous. We've read James 1 when we dealt with Ahasuerus' anger. James 1 says, uh, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness God requires. We like to think we have righteous indignation, but the, the statistics are against us. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, you heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, you airhead, raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, it's probably good that we don't have the recordings of what happens when we're driving in rush hour and the things that come out of our mouth and judgment upon fellow creatures created in the image of God that are murderous threats. But God does know. God sees all, hears all, knows all, and He knows your heart, the meditations of your heart. He knows the attitudes and motivations of our hearts. And anger produces death. And death at our hands, at our tongues, at our minds, makes us liable to judgment of God. Oh, we must be careful, not only little hands, little eyes, little feet, but minds and hearts, what we think. These guards let it get the better of them. And thus comes our next uh, little scene in the plot, the gambit, we'll call it. I had to find another G, you notice. Gambit is a, a word, it actually um, 
probably Italian. Pray for the Italians. They're in an election uh, today. Um, it has to do with trying to trip someone up, kind of a, a ploy, and then it was used in chess as uh, sacrificing your, your bishop's pawn in order for advantageous move, and then it became for all kinds of different chess moves, and it became part of the spy terminology uh, in the Cold War, the gambit, the plan, the plot, the ploy, the stratagem. This is the plot for the assassination. And it says that this plot became known. How, how does it read? Uh, they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, verse 21. Verse 22, this, this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Now, it came to the knowledge as an active kind of form of the word, and it, again, hints to us that this is not Mordecai, uh, sipping his lemonade or tea or, or his espresso there in the, in the city gate leaning back on the chair and he overheard something. He's a little more active. He, he's an intelligence gatherer. He knows how to get information. And this knowledge now has come to his desk. He's a wise man. He's a shrewd man. Well, somehow... Uh, he got this source. We, we don't know where he got it. That must still be classified. But his, his informants get this to him. And um, he gets word to Esther. Esther gets word to the king. Now there's an efficiency in this administration that is really awesome. Hey, it's effective. Now, on the other side, the administration has some communication problems. I mean, if they can get this kind of, if, if Mordecai can get this kind of information, he's probably not the only one within the Secret Service to be able to do so. And there's probably others uh, vying for position and jockeying in those positions and so forth. And how is it? How is it that the emperor has not found out that Esther is a Jew? Well, maybe the bureaucracy is not so efficient as you think. Ours probably too. I know sometimes we get scared about, we call it Big Brother. But you know, there's enough evidence to say that they're not that good. They're not that efficient. You know, one office doesn't know what the other office is doing. We're safe. Well, relatively, only for the moment. But this is the way of bureaucracies, administrations, politics, all across history. The obvious things they can't find out. Well, Esther gives credit to Mordecai. And apparently, Mordecai is not secretive about his ethnicity. Um, for when, when the plan comes out, um, Haman 
seems to know that Mordecai is a Jew. And when the account is read before the king later on, he's marked as the Jew. So, interesting observation, isn't it? We don't want to fault Mordecai too badly on deception or even hiding not just his ethnicity, perhaps not even his faith. But here you have a Jew who's of noble family in the line of Saul, King Saul. Their family deported uh, to Babylon, and now Babylon overtaken by Persia. And, and this man who is loyal, supposedly, to Jerusalem and the temple and to the Lord is serving a pagan Gentile king. I could, I could imagine the temptation for Mordecai to allow the assassins to do their job. This, this is not a, a nice king. He's not, he's not moral king. But no, Mordecai's loyalty is to God and the king. And so he warns the king. And the, this is a not just a noble trait of loyalty and faithfulness, but it's, it's a gospel trait. If we can broaden the application for us, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes the way we look upon our enemies, the way we treat the people that hurt us most. The gospel, the gospel requires that we love our enemies. And that we treat them, not the way they treat us, but the way Christ treats us is how we treat our enemy. There's a kind of example here in Mordecai. And in a faithful service to the king, like a Joseph in the book of Genesis or a Daniel in the book by his same name. Well, that's the gate scenario. Then come the gallows, verse 23. When the affair was investigated and the men and found out to be so, the, the men were both hanged on the gallows that was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the only place in the whole story of Esther where the king actually investigates anything. This is the only time his life is in danger. I guess he must think it's worth investigating. Otherwise, he just takes the news, goes on about his life of leisure. There's, this is probably a reference to impalement. Probably this gallows, uh, we use kind of a vague translation of it actually, but it, it's probably they were killed, executed, in normal execution style, and then their bodies placed high on stakes to shame them uh, and uh, to set an example. Uh, likely, they were dead before they were impaled, but that wasn't always the case uh, when the enemies of, when Persia would take its enemies, they would hoist them on your own petard, so to speak. And... Uh, 
A little different than the picture of crucifixion, but indeed hung upon a tree nonetheless. It's the display of justice, the display of judgment, and the king, the governments, are there to administer justice justly. They don't always do it justly, but that is their God-intended purpose, their God-ordained purpose, to dispense justice and to reward the good and to punish the wrongdoer. So we do need to be praying for our leadership, our governments, that they would rule justly and that justice would prevail. We have terrible examples of injustice even even today in the governments of the world. When we act faithfully and loyalty like a Mordecai, we can stem the tide of the injustices. When we pray to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and ask Him that His kingdom come, His will be done, His name be the center on earth as it is in heaven, then we can stem the tide of these kinds of injustices. But not everything goes like you think. Verse 23 goes on to tell us the mistake, the gaffe. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Like, what? Mordecai was, was the one who saved the king. Did he, and he got passed over for promotion? Those kinds of things happen to people, you know. Maybe you've just heard about them. Maybe you've experienced them. You do the right thing, you do the loyal thing, you do the faithful thing, and you get passed over or unrecognized. Or someone else gets the recognition. And we are tempted. Why bother? That's the psalmist's, I think, attitude in Psalm 73. He's struggling. Like, I do the right things. I'm, I'm trying to live the God way in life. And the wicked just keep going and succeeding. What is the point? The psalmist says halfway through this, this psalm, there's a turning point, until I went to worship. That worship is the turning point in life. Then I understood the outcome of the wicked. God will just, justly in his time and in his way. We do the right thing not to get the gratitude from other people, but for the glory of God. Colossians uh, is a, a good reference for us to consider as we, as we did. Colossians 3.22 Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, this is written to the servants. It's not an exact comparison, but it's as close a cultural leap as we can make. It's the employer-employee relationship. And the employee is there to work heartily for their employer, their earthly master. Not just by way of eye service, not just as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Do it heartily for the Lord and not for men. Not for their praise, not for their gratitude. For God's glory. I have a, a friend who taught his kids um, when they go to work, you're going to work to make money for your boss. You're not there to get a paycheck. You're there to make money for your boss. Then, when the boss prospers, he shares that with you. And you get the paycheck. You do it for the good of the master, for the good of the company, the good of the employer, not just yours. Knowing that there is a delayed gratification, the reward, the inheritance will come, you're not serving for this earthly reward. You're serving for the heavenly reward, the inheritance of God's glorious salvation. Jesus, in Luke 6, verse 35, puts it maybe even just a bit more bluntly for us. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. We serve, we work, we do the right thing, expecting nothing in return. Hmm. Boy, do we need to change our heart motivation and attitude, don't we? We don't strive to do what is right for their gratitude, but for God's glory. Mordecai gets passed over. This whole averting of the assassins is overlooked. No reward, no compensation, no recognition. And here's a lesson. The timing of providence is invisible, but God is still working. He's still accomplishing His purposes, and He works in these behind-the-scenes little coincidences in our lives in a way that only time will reveal. One put it this way, our good works are like seeds planted by faith, and their fruits don't appear immediately. But God's timing is always perfect, and He sees to it that no good deed is ever wasted. Now, maybe you've read ahead in the story, and you know how things are going to turn around. That's fine. But we're kind of st set in this spot with Mordecai. Huh. He did a good thing. Is there going to be any fruit from his labor? You may be asking the same thing in your own life, your own question. Maybe it is in work. Maybe it is in finance or government. Maybe it's in your faith. God, I keep 
trying to do the right thing. Why don't I seem to be able to move ahead? Well, know this, that God who sees all and knows all will bring His reward. He will. He's promised that He will. In fact, when God's people have problems and, and we can't see the hand of God as if it's if ladybug season and we're driving through the field and the windshield is smack full of goo and we can't see clearly what's ahead. When we have problems, God is already has already been working to solve them. He's way ahead of us. He's way ahead of the problems. In fact, before the foundations of the world, Christ died for sinners. Was the plan all along. God knew. He didn't have to make up plan B. He knew. His intent was to save sinners. Well, let's read Romans, these verses here. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and following. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled will we be saved by His life. God's way ahead of our sin problem. He's way ahead of any of our failures, any of our falterings. And He has provided everything we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can sit quietly, restfully, contentedly, being overlooked, being passed, wondering when, because we know God will keep His promise and His reward is coming with Him. That indeed was the promise we read in Revelation with the responsive reading. He will bring his reward. And we live in that hope, anticipating the coming of Christ and the full measure of our reward with him. Our Father God, we thank you for giving us a real life taste and picture of faithfulness, perseverance, even when the future is unclear, uncertain, knowing that you have a, a word to bless your people. Not our best life now, but the day when Jesus comes and all of his glory. And he will share that with his bride and with us, the children of God. So God, may we persevere 
in doing what is right. May we live a life of forgiveness toward others, even as Christ has forgiven us. May we not respond hastily, vengefully, with anger toward those who disappoint us or dissatisfy us, even disrespect us. But may we leave it to you, and may we love those who persecute us. May we love our enemies. For you, O Christ, even while we were still enemies, died for us. May that shape and mold our mind, our heart, our character to be a gospel people, a graceful people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.